This is Shop Talk Radio, episode 90, part two with Cal Fussman. Welcome to Shop Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, and on this show, we bring you inspiring guests to dive underneath the hood of the creative entrepreneur lifestyle to take your creativity, business, and life to the next level. What is up, everyone? Welcome to this week's episode of Shop Talk Radio. I am your host, Nick Onkin, and today we have part two of Cal Fussman, the expert interviewer who is the writer of What I Learned in Esquire. He is a master interviewer and all-around great guy. And this episode, a couple of fun things happen. We actually flipped the script and Cal interviews me for a little bit of the episode. And so you get to hear a little bit about my perspective on photography and some of his random questions. We also get to hear his amazing story of when he interviewed Muhammad Ali And if you haven't heard, he is so animated and just an amazing storyteller. So be sure and listen for that as well. A lot of fun things happening these days. I'm going to Guatemala this coming week. Actually, by the time this is released, I will be down there shooting for Pencils of Promise, my favorite charity. They build schools for kids in the developing world in Laos, Guatemala, and Ghana. So we'll be down there building some branding imagery for the organization. My vision for this podcast is to help take your creativity, business, and life to the next level. So this podcast is for you. And if you have any questions that you would like answered, I will do my best. But go over to Facebook facebook.com slash Nick Onkin photo and post a question. And if it makes sense for the podcast, I will do so. Also, if this podcast has inspired you and you've got something out of it, I'd love it if you could help me out by leaving a good review over on iTunes. That just helps us get the word out and share the podcast with more people. So with that, let's jump in to part two with the one and only Cal Fussman. Were you ever a watcher or were you a doer? I was always a doer, I think. I mean, I'm, I'm, that's why I'm here now is because I've always believed in doing and creating, creating what you want in your life. And I've always been actively doing that. Like, can you recall when you were a kid, would you sell lemonade on the streets? Would you do things that were like entrepreneurial or... Yeah, and I'd be always making art versus sitting in front of a TV. I'd be drawing or I'd be doing anything that's like proactive and creative. Like what kind of art would you do? I used to paint as a kid or I used to draw. I used to like draw um, Disney characters, Mickey Mouse. That's so, where I, kind of where I started. So you can do them freehand? I'd do it freehand, but I'd have to look at another another drawing or something else and I could I could draw it pretty close. What, yeah. is, what a talent. Uh, you know, when I was traveling around the world, that was the one thing that I wished I could have because I didn't, a good portion of the time, I would not carry a camera. Mm. We had no cell phones because in my mind at the time, I didn't want to stop and say, hey, let's take a picture. I didn't want the, I didn't want the moment to be turned into a picture. I just want to be living the moment. Yeah. And so what I wish that I had 
was the ability to say, sit down uh, over breakfast while I'm in Vienna and just make a drawing of the street. God, that would have been fantastic. (laughs) But I can't draw. Yeah. So now I don't have any pictures and I don't have any drawings. <laughs> but you can write and you can interview. <laughs> I, I got stories. I got stories. You got great stories. Speaking of stories, it sounds like Muhammad Ali was is your childhood hero. Was that one of your favorite interviews of all time? Or do you have another one that was? Yeah, that that was very amazing to me because I got a chance to write a cover story about him for Esquire, which mm-hmm. is the fulfillment of my life's dream. Mm. And I was called to interview him. This is 2003. Mm. By this time, this is years after he was done fighting. The world already knew that he had Parkinson's disease. Now, we had seen at the Atlanta Olympics Ali was holding the Olympic torch and it was his honor to light the Olympic flame. Mm-hmm. And he, his hand was shaking and he stood over that cauldron with the lit torch and he looked like he couldn't make it light. And like the whole world was just holding its breath. And here is this guy who was the supreme athlete on the planet and now it seems like his shaking hand can't even light the Olympic cauldron. And it he does. Yeah. And the stadium erupts along with the flame. But everybody really knew at that point that Parkinson's was a huge part of his life. And so six years later, six years after that, or actually seven is 2003, Esquire celebrating its uh, 70th anniversary. And they said, go out and tell us how he's doing. Mm. So I go to meet him in Dublin, Ireland. And he was on hand to open the Special Olympics. Mm. And I met him in his hotel suite. He comes out of his bedroom. He knew... That I was that he was my hero. On these slow, tender steps, and he opens his arms wide. He gives me an embrace, mm. and then he slowly slumps down into this plush leather chair. I sit down on a couch next to him. I said, "Muhammad, I came here to find out." all the wisdom that you've taken from your life. And as I'm talking, his right hand is really starting to shake. And I say to him, you know, one of the guys you fought, George Foreman, to win the heavyweight championship for the second time, he told me that you're the most important person in the world. He said he knows that because when you, Muhammad Ali, walk in a room, everybody in that room, whether they're a king, prime minister, actor, business leader, everybody turns toward you. You are where all the eyes go. 
And as I'm saying this, now both of Muhammad's hands are shaking. And he's starting to bend over, and now, now I'm starting to get worried. As I'm thinking this, now he's like half bent over to the ground. Both of his arms are shaking, and he's kind of gasping for air. And I say, Cham, are you okay? Are you okay? And his head slowly rises and comes up to mine. Scared you, huh? <laughs> oh, my God. And it was very confusing for me. I spent about four days in Dublin, and one day he'd be in a wheelchair because he couldn't get from one place to another. It was a long distance, and he was tired. The next day, we'd be he'd be walking uh, to a restaurant, and we'd sit down and eat. We'd be coming out, and a whole crowd of people, it looked like, were going to engulf us. And we needed to move real fast mm. before that happened. And he moved really fast to get to the car. And so you're thinking, hold it. One day he's in a wheelchair. Now he's moving fast. And I, I can't figure out how I'm going to show this paradox. Mm. So I'm watching it. We go back home to his, he had a farm in Michigan and same thing. He's doing magic tricks for people one day, although he's speaking in a whisper. He doesn't speak very loud. The loudest I heard his voice over the week I was with him was scared you, huh? So he began doing magic tricks one day. Then the next day, he like takes his medicine, turns his tongue orange, and we're sitting on the sofa talking. And all of a sudden, and he, he just falls asleep, and his leg is like jiggling into mine. And I just don't know how I can possibly convey all this in a magazine article. And so it's getting to the last day, and. Muhammad's wife, Lonnie, says, Muhammad, you know, you never work out anymore. Why don't you take Cal over to the gym? Like, do a little exercise. Show him the gym. Muhammad, like, rolls his eyes. Oh, geez, the wife. I said, all right, come on. So he walks me over to this gym, which is adjacent to the house. It's huge. We walk in, and it's like this gym is not a gym. It's a museum. Hmm. The boxing ring in the center looked like nobody had ever stepped in it. Exercise equipment all around looked like it just came out of the boxes. There is a mirror that runs along the walls from all, covers all four walls. And above these mirrors are photos of Ali fighting Joe Frazier, his rival they fought three fights and and that rivalry was the thrill of my childhood Mm. like i could have told you anything about muhammad ali or joe frazier when i was a kid i like i even knew this childhood stories that explain their styles in the ring for instance when muhammad was a kid his name was cassius clay back then what he used to do is he used to have his younger brother, Rudy, throw rocks at his head in the street. And 
as the rock would be approaching his head, at just the very last second, he'd tilt his head back and let the rock whiz right by his nose. And that was his style in the ring. He would be dancing, dancing, dancing around his opponents. We'd never seen a heavyweight dance like that. And then his opponent would throw a punch, and it would just be heading right at Ali's jaw. And in the last minute, he would just take his head back a notch and the punch would just, it wouldn't even graze his jaw. And then, and then, Ali would hit the guy 20 times before <laughs> the guy could even blink. Wow. And so, that was Ali's childhood. Joe Frazier, on the other hand, was a short, stocky guy from Beaufort, South Carolina. And grew up on a farm and his dad and he would use a cross saw to cut through lumber. Mm. His dad used his right hand because his dad had no left hand. It'd been shot off. And that would force Joe to use his left hand, muscle mm. that saw back and forth all day as a kid. Yeah. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Out of that, out of the muscles in his left arm came this leaping left hook which just curved around from the side. And it was the one punch that you couldn't see coming. Mm. The one punch that a kid who could avoid rocks in the street had no idea was on the way. And so this rivalry between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier was like watching Thunder versus Lightning. Mm. Fought three times. At the time they fought, Muhammad Ali had done some amazing things in that he stood up to the government. They had drafted him into the army during the Vietnam War. Basically said, I ain't got nothing against no Viet Cong. Sounds like a bunch of white men trying to send a black man to kill some yellow men. A conscientious <laughs> objector, I'm not going. And he did not go into the army. And because of that, he was not allowed he, uh, to fight for three and a half years while his case went to the Supreme Court. Because he said, I'm a conscientious objector and I should not be subject to the draft. He won his case. And when he came back to fight, he wasn't really a very young dancer mm. who could avoid those punches. Now he was in against Joe Frazier. Now he started to get into trouble. Mm. When he would get into trouble in these fights, when that left hook would start whacking against his ribs or against his jaw, I mean, after the first fight, which Frazier won, Ali's face looked like a melon. It was that swollen from these left hooks. And... Ali would be in trouble. And he had this amazing corner man named Drew Bundini Brown, who was more of an exhorter than a corner man. He basically would just shout out things like, go to the well once more, champ. Go to the well once more. The world needs you, champ. And Ali would find something inside of him rip off a flurry of punches. And so I'm, 
I'm looking at these photos of Ali fighting Frazier, and I can almost hear through Mandini mm. Brown's voice in my ears. Well, once more, I'm thinking, okay, that's what you've got to do. You've got to find out what's still in the well. Mm. So I look over and I see a rack of boxing gloves. Mm. And I go to the rack. I'm thinking, man, he's going to try this? Really? I walk over to the rack and I take four gloves. I put two on Muhammad's hands, two on mine. Now, there's another story. It's a long story. I can't tell it now. But in order to understand what's about to happen, you have to know that I once boxed against Julio Cesar Chavez when he was junior welterweight champ of the world in 87-0. and 0. And the important thing about that is I trained six months to get a couple of rounds in with him. Mm. And in that training, I trained to fight in the exact style of Joe Frazier. So I just start, I get down in my crouch, and I'm bobbing and weaving like Joe Frazier. And I'm looking at Ali out of the corner of my eye. See me like, and I, I mean, I, I can even sound like Joe Frazier when I throw my left foot. <laughs> and I go up to the heavy bag. I didn't come in Ali and there was a big heavy bag. I go up to the heavy bag and I'm all of a sudden I just start throwing left hooks into it. Looking at Ali at the corner of my eyes. His eyebrows arched. He was like a sleeping lion wakened by an old familiar scent. And now he comes to them. He's doing. He's jabbing, throwing his right cross. I said, you think that could keep me off? I'm back in my crouch. I'm throwing left hooks. He goes to the back. Now I'm back in the bag, and now I'm just letting everything I have in this bag. And then he looks at me. And there's this moment where his eyes say to me, oh, slowly, left hand is like waving me aside. And I saw something in that moment. Brings me to, it almost brings me to tears every time I think of it. I saw something in that moment I never thought I would see again. Muhammad Ali started to dance. Dancing around this bag, dancing, he's dancing, dancing. And all of a sudden, as he's dancing, you see he's looking at, the, at himself in these mirrors around the gym. Mm. And as he's looking at himself, his chest is coming up, his chin is coming up. Mm. He's dancing, and he's dancing. And then he just stops and he just throws. 40 punches in a row. It's like as faster than a shoe shine guy can buff shoes. 40 of them. And then throws his own left hook, smashes into the bag. If the bag had been a human being, it would have gone down. And I'm staring at this in disbelief. And then Ali starts to stumble. 
and he's going down. And I'm thinking, oh my God. And then he falls on these mats near the bag. And I said, what have you done? Oh my God, what have I done? What have I done? <laughs> Slowly, turns around, and he starts doing stomach crunches. And he lifts his leg up in the air, his legs in the air, and he starts doing bicycling. He's bicycling with his legs. And then he does sit-ups. And then he gets up, and he goes to the super light press. There were like 250 pounds on it. Steps in the seat. He's pushing the weights back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I said, Jack, you, 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 that's a lot of weight. You don't need to yeah. do that. And he says to me, feels good. So I thought that he'd given me the answer to my question. But he had more to give. Go back to the house. And he takes me to a table and he says, you know, and then he goes into his office and he comes back with a sheet of paper. And on this sheet of paper was one quote after another page was just filled with wisdom. And he pointed to the middle and the line said, God will not place a burden on a man's shoulders knowing that he cannot handle it. Mm was the answer to my question. Story. As beautiful, it was a beautiful time. Ah, I can imagine. And it, it, part of the great thing about it is you have a hero. It's, it's not easy to meet your hero. Yes. Generally, when you meet your hero, you can only be disappointed because you've put them up in such a high place. And they're only human. Yeah. There's, a, there's a great story I heard. I don't know if it's true. But the film director, Martin Scorsese, his hero, if it's true, was Akira Kurosawa, the Japanese filmmaker who made Seven Samurai. Great film. And so Scorsese's going to a party. And a friend of his says, oh, this is great, Marty. As they're going up to the door, this is great. Kurosawa's inside. Mm. Scorsese just turned around. He didn't even go in the room. He just left. He didn't want to be disappointed. And so the great thing about my meeting with Muhammad Ali is he not only didn't disappoint me, but he lifted the way I thought about him. Mm. And also, by the way, he treated me over the week. And so it's, it's, not, it's not common to get to see your hero in those terms. Yeah. And I, I had another, another hero. I have another hero, uh, Larry King. Mm. And same thing. Uh, when I'm around Larry King, he's more heroic and when I didn't know him and just saw him mm. interviewing people on CNN. Yeah. What makes him more heroic? There's a goodness to him mm. that is just joyful. I have breakfast with him every morning. 
And I just so look forward to going to the breakfast table. And what we do is we talk world events, but also the great thing about the table is it solves any problem. Any problem you got, Larry (laughs) King's breakfast table can solve it because most of the older guys are 80 years old. Mm. You might have a lawyer at the table, Harry the lawyer. There's uh, (laughs) got the doc. Uh, who any any medical problems you got, he can tell you all about. Uh, we, we've got a guy who works in the film industry, so anything you know, you can ask Bruce. And got George Slaughter, who created a show that I don't know if any of your listeners is going to know. It goes it goes back a few years. It's called Laughing. It was the biggest show on TV in its time, and so he's a repository of knowledge of comedy and mm. television. And, and there are a lot of other guys who show up in and out. So whatever your problem is, these guys have seen it before and, and <laughs> it's done. <Go> it's, it's, <laughs> you walk out, you're a free man or a free woman. Oh, wow. So that, that, that's kind of a beautiful thing to wake up every day and have that. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's beautiful. Do you have any morning rituals? Yeah, I just recently started meditating, which is, it's been a new practice and I think it's been helpful in, in calming, calming my days out. What's it like to think of nothing? Um, well, this is a different type of, this is Vedic meditation, which is, is a, it's a mantra based meditation. So it allows you to go into a state of transcendence. And it's, it's totally weird. It's totally bizarre, but it lets you. So it's like your mind levitating. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's kind of like you're halfway awake and halfway asleep in a, in a dream state. And. But you're not dreaming. No. You wake in a up dream in dream state without the dreams. Yeah. But you What's do the have fun like, of that? Man? <laughs> well, you do have actually, it's kind of, kind of like dreams a little bit. Like it'll, sometimes you wake up in thought or you can become conscious in thought you transcend into a state where you're explain. It's kind of like, like when in the middle of the night, when you get up to go to the bathroom and you're like kind of in the middle of a dream and you don't want to wake up too much to like get to where you totally lose it, but then you need to be conscious enough to make it to the toilet. <laughs> and you're kind of like in that in between state. That's what, that's what that transcendence is kind of like. You can be thinking you'll that you have a mantra that you repeat and it kind of drops you into this state of transcendence and you come back out and you'll be thinking thoughts and you go back to the mantra and it's a circular cycle. It's the weirdest thing. I've never How long you been doing this? August. So what eight eight, nine months? You get better at it? It goes up and down. I you know, it's not it's it's something that I guess you could get better at, but it's, it's supposed to make you better at everything else in life. You, it's not necessarily, so mindfulness is something, is a different practice, which is more of what you're talking about where you think about nothing. And I have a hard time doing that. <laughs> like you're a very visual person. You take great photos. Are you shutting down that aspect of your mind while you're meditating or are you seeing amazing images? A lot of times I'll see vivid images. Sometimes it's so vivid. It's almost a vivid dream in a certain sense that I'll come out of it. I've almost like had like a dream, like in my mind of where I'm like eating a delicious 
food and I'll, I'll even bring my hand up to my mouth and I'll like almost laugh and, and becoming awake that I just like did that. Like when you wake up, you're like, you kind of wake yourself up in a dream from talking or feel like you're like you're dreaming, but you, and you kind of physically move because you're in the dream. If that makes any sense at all, but <laughs> I'm <trying> to... <laughs> it's it's just the most bizarre. It's it's so bizarre feeling, but it but feels good. It feels good, it, and it I I do it on the plane as well because it helps with jet lag. Because so your brain is getting two to three times more rest than sleep with this type of meditation. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of neurological benefits to this. And how, how long does it take to learn? We did a four day class. It's like four, but it's like two hours each day. And it's pretty easy to learn. The teacher gives you a mantra, but then there's, she, she talks through like how to do it. And like the group will meditate and then talk about their experiences throughout the days. When you're done, do you see clearer? Um. Sometimes I do. Sometimes my, my brain is in a little bit of a fog and it, you have to give it a, give it a little bit to like come out of it. But what happens when a photographer's brain is in a little bit of a fog? Do you, do you, can you take better pictures? I've heard uh, Lauren Hutton, the, the first supermodel, when I, when I asked her what makes a good photo, she said, happy accidents. Hmm. Do you, do you agree with that? Yeah. There are a lot of happy accidents that happen. Sometimes you just accidentally push the button and then, picture comes out wonderful when you didn't when you didn't mean to yeah it just your finger told you press yeah or you bump the trigger and some sometimes you just you take it at the wrong time or the wrong moment but it becomes the right moment what are the secrets to being a good photographer um seeing is the first thing learning how to see how do you learn how to, this is what I need to do. How do you learn how to see? <laughs> I think it takes, it's, it's practice. It's looking at other great, great photography, breaking it down. And then, you know, now it's almost, it's weird. I almost see it in photographs. I look around, I'll look for the moment, the, the moments that I look for. Maybe it's, it's the way somebody's laughing or the way somebody's moving or the way some, somebody is placed in a photo in, in a, in a rectangle or a square. Do you, do you see people in squares and rectangles? I mean, now with Instagram, it's a little more squares, but <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I do. I, or I see scenes in, in a frame in a certain sense. So my mind is always looking for that. But I think that's something that I've been aware of, become aware of the more that I've done photography. Do you, do you see things that you don't have your camera in hand, you think, Oh my God, I miss, I just missed it. I just missed it. That was a great picture. I just missed it. There, there have been a few times where I've, I feel like I've missed moments and sometimes, sometimes it's cause the camera is just not quick enough on the draw. Like if I'm, if I just have like an iPhone, sometimes it takes too long to take the photo so the camera doesn't get up to speed and then that moment's gone. Um, those are kind of the moments that I'll, I'll tend to miss. Um, you know, if I'm, sometimes I'll look, if I'm travel, if I'm doing a travel, if I'm shooting travel work, I'll be walking through a scene or I'll walk through a city and I'll see something that just happened and I, I don't know, I've just missed it. 
sometimes I can actually like anticipate moments that I'm looking for. If I see something going on and I can anticipate that something's going to happen and I can kind of wait for that moment and shoot it. When you walk through cities, what do you look for? Or are you not looking, you're just seeing? I look for, I look for mo- like moments where people are doing things. I look for cultural nuances, things that are different than I'm normally used to seeing. In like, that's where I get the most inspired is going through another country and seeing different things that I'm used to seeing every day. People doing different actions, different different things that they do on a day to day basis in another in another country. So like what country would be a great country to start? If I wanted to start to be a photographer and I was following your advice, what country would be the best place to start shooting pictures? Probably Japan. Japan is fascinating. Why? Uh, because it's such a modern, it's like a first world country, Like, but it's completely different, completely bizarre and completely, they have so many different, objects and colors and textures and foods and just the way it visually it's it's very stimulating it's very there's an orderly orderliness to it and then there's also just a, an asian chaos to it which is completely bizarre and so you can walk around and there's just so many interesting things like whether it's street side goodies food or it's like it, the way kids are dressed the way people are dressed there traditional I think I like traditional type of um, wardrobe or attire. And Asia has a lot of that. Completely different than you're used to. Does a photographer ever get bored? And yeah. I think for me, if I start shooting the same thing over and over again, the same type of content, which is why I love to shoot different things all the time. Yeah, why would you shoot the same thing over and over again? Yeah, it's kind of like shooting weddings for me. Shooting weddings feels like the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, but like somebody told me, every strawberry is different. Uh, like every wedding is is different. I I, I can remember seeing a photo of, of a, a wedding where a woman was like 300 pounds and she was marrying a guy who was like a toothpick. <laughs> now you would have probably enjoyed taking that picture. Yeah. Uh, is there is there not something different about the next wedding that could captivate you or you're you're just through with it? I've seen that. For me it's just it's it's the same it's a black and white tux and the same ceremony every time every time and yeah the people change the the scenery changes a little bit but it's kind of the same story to me which I Okay, so they want the same shot. Is what you what they yeah. they want that group shot. Okay, I get it. Yeah, they want the group shots. They want the kissing shot. They want the the scene shot. They <laughs> want the girl, the bride walking down the aisle shot. They want you know uh, what I mean. Okay. And they want the party yeah, shots. Yeah, everybody yeah. dancing on the floor. And yeah, it, it, it's it's a different type of business, I think, than than um, the other stuff that I work on. You know, it's interesting. I was at a wedding uh, where there was a, a major mishap. Mm. Because uh, the person who threw his, he and his wife were getting married, and uh, it was a grand affair, big affair, and they 
then money was no, was not an issue. You can get the best mm -hmm. photographers, the best band. And so they had really good photographers and the wife's friends were professional dancers. Mm -hmm. Wife was a professional dancer. And so what happened is they had great music and like everybody, the dancers are out on the dance floor. It is like beautiful to watch. Yeah. Yes. It was, it was like watching a show. Yeah. And wedding ends, photos come back and all the photos are of the dancers, the professional dancers. Oh, no. They missed uncle Mike in the, in the back throwing a beer down. And they, they just went for what was visually stimulating yeah. and let go the ordinary shot, mm -hmm. which I imagine if you would just stayed around and wait for the right moment, there's a moment of laughter. There's a, some instant that if you caught it on film mm -hmm. and showed it to the people, it would instantly become, Oh, that was, that was from that wedding. It would be memorable. Yeah. But up against all these amazing dancers, <laughs> all the photographers just lasered in on it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It's, it, it's, you know, it's interesting to be talking to you at this point because just the other day, and we're talking about like doing new things, thinking a new way. Yeah. And like the whole Instagram thing. Mm-hmm. I was walking around New York city around central park and I just started to take pictures first time ever mm. of reflections off the water buildings. Mm -hmm. And it just really struck me again. Yeah. I'm thinking like a kid. Yeah. I never would have done this 10 years ago. Yeah. It was a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. Now all this that, that I could do it with an iPhone. Yeah. And that it would do it for me. I didn't have to set up any lights or know anything. Yeah. yeah. Now, did you, did you notice the reflections in the water before? Or is that something when you, as you were like thinking about a photograph, you're like, oh, I see, I see those now. Well, my wife used to like to do it. Mm. So then when I saw it, I was like, wow, I'm I, like, I'll just send her a photo of a reflection yeah. off the water. Cause I know. That's what she likes. Yeah. And as soon as I did, she just sent me, messaged me back with joy. Yeah. I, That's sweet. Yeah. It's photography is such a great thing to be able to capture a moment yeah. and have it live, live past the actual moment because you won't, you remember as the years go by, you remember the photograph more than you remember what actually happened. Mm -hmm. And so only now am I starting to do this, do these things to see the world better, mm. to, to speak. And the internet has really enabled me to, to do this yeah. because if there had been no internet, Number one, I wouldn't have been walking around Central Park with a camera. <laughs> and number two, just the old way of developing film. I don't know if many of your listeners are aware, but you used to, if you live by a mall, there used to be like a little booth yeah. where you would pull up, drop your roll of film off, and then three days later, you'd come back and pick up your pictures. 
And the joy of being able to see something in the park and say, oh, my wife would like that. Took the picture in one second and it was texted okay. the next and it made her happy three seconds later. And <laughs> that's something. That's something, brother. That's we something didn't have else. that when I was a kid. <laughs> well, that's great. So one last question I'd love to ask all my guests is what does the phrase live inspiration mean to you? Live inspiration. I never heard it before. Did you invent it? I invented it. <laughs> <laughs> now, why would you say live inspiration as opposed to live inspired? Mm, well, I, I think there's a difference. What's the difference? I want to hear your answer first. Well, I, I'm trying to understand <laughs> it. You got to explain it to me. Well, I think live inspired is to be, you're living, you're, you're living and you're being inspired all the time. Okay. I think for me, live inspiration to live inspiration is to be inspired, but also be inspiring to others. Ah, okay. Wow. You know what? That, that basically tells me something. I really have to continue my reinvention of myself mm. because I've been so busy just living mm. that I never really thought about inspiring anybody else. I was just getting through life. <laughs> I was just getting through the day to days. I was yeah. just like traveling around the world, trying to make sure I had a roof over my head that night. Yeah. I was not thinking, wow, how, how can this train trip inspire others? See, that's the thing without, if you grow up without the internet, it's much harder to inspire people. Yeah. Because you can't, you can't read, you can't reach them. Mm -hmm. So what I think is, this is just another reminder to me to get with it, man. I, I got to be following people like you <laughs> because you're, I'm living in your world. Mm -hmm. And that's going back to what we were talking about. Young people should not be listening to me to find out how to climb yesterday's mountain. They should be looking ahead to see the next mountain, mm -hmm. maybe pointing it out to me mm -hmm. because I might, I might not necessarily see it unless somebody tells me it's there. But once I know it's there, <laughs> then I'll climb it. Then you got it. Then you got it. Then I got it. <laughs> Well, I mean, I don't think you necessarily need the internet to be an inspiring person. I think you can inspire people every day and you don't have to necessarily think about it. I mean, you're a very inspiring person naturally from what you do. You create you create your moments is something that I use a lot is in you're constantly out there. You're constantly like talking to people and being curious and you're being an impact in the world and, and to people. And I acknowledge you for that. I think that's that's an amazing thing. That's inspiring to me to see you go out and hear your stories of going off and like running through, you know, Europe and, and creating all these moments in your life. Like you're being inspiring by doing that. You might not necessarily be sharing it on the internet. We are now. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're inspiring other people, but I think even just sharing the stories in person is, is a way of inspiring people. And I think you do that tremendously. Well, thanks. You, you know, you're onto something because what I'm doing now is it is 
pretty much exactly that. I'm going out and speaking to people mm. and I'm also uh, talking to companies uh, who have problems hiring people. Mm. They don't know how to interview or they, it, it, people don't realize how difficult it is for companies because when you talk to people who really know about a hi- the whole hiring industry, mm-hmm. they'll tell you that if you offered the head of a company uh, a chance to say, okay, how many, how many of your people would you keep knowing, now that you know them mm-hmm. and how many would you get rid of? Generally, people in charge will say 50%. percent mm. I'll, I'll keep this one. I'll let go of that one. And a lot of companies, it's certainly understandable that they would want it to be 90%. Yeah. But it really isn't that way. And so I started to look into this and then I found out that it costs a company so much money every time they've, have to fire somebody or let them go. It basically cost that salary uh, times one and a half at the least, at the least. Yeah. So if whatever the person's make, it's one and a half times to find somebody new because you got to go out and search for them. Mm-hmm. You got to train them. And so you're losing money. Yeah. Uh, when you fire somebody. And then when it gets up to big jobs where people are making a lot of money, that that number grows to like 10 times their salary. So if somebody's making like a million dollars and they they have to be fired, it's like a $10 million loss for a company. Wow. So what I'm doing now is talking to companies and showing them how to find the who and who they're hiring. Mm. Because you it's like there's this saying you get hired for what you've done, but you get fired for who you are. And most of the time, companies don't know who they're hiring. Mm. And so now I am going out and I'm helping companies yeah. determine you know, what they need and helping them find it, mm. which actually is probably beneficial for the right people who need that job. Yeah. Because hiring the wrong person doesn't help anybody. <laughs> So I, I think I am at a point where you know, this is, this is a big moment in my life. I am going to be living inspiration. Good. I, I like it. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you're on Twitter. So where can people follow you on, on Twitter? Uh, Cal Fussman. Cal Fussman. I think that's what it is. Uh, C-A-L-F-U-S-S-M-A-N. And Generally, I tweet out a little nugget of wisdom every day from somebody I've interviewed. Like it. So you can always like taking a vitamin, vitamin for your brain every every day. I love it. I love it. Well, Cal, thank you so much for taking the time, and and this is great. This is fantastic. I'm I'm now an improved photographer as well. Thank you. You got it. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you guys so much for tuning in to today's episode with Cal Fussman. I am your host, Nick Onkin, and I really, really appreciate you listening and taking the time to do that. If you found this podcast inspiring and found something and got something out of it, I'd love it if you could help me out by leaving me a good review over on iTunes and sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, any of the social medias out there. And I do love hearing from you. I love hearing how this podcast is helping your lives. And for those of you who have emailed in or said hello on the streets, I thank you for that. It makes my day. It makes me very happy. So with that, go out, create your life by creating every moment, and we'll see you next time. Mm